Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Breadth and depth in an educator is always an impressive thing. There are essential components in building a sophisticated, nuanced, intercultural understanding of people and place and our planet. Hamish Curry is the Executive Director of the Asia Education Foundation. He has probably the most impressive CV of an educator I've ever seen. I'm so excited that we're talking with him today, Adriano. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 7 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course I can. We are proud to be partnered with EDAPT Education. EDAPT Education helps schools from around Australia bring together their academic engagement, wellbeing, intervention and student voice data onto one platform. Let your data work for you to improve the academic growth and wellbeing of all students in your school. For training and support to help you get started, visit www.edapt.education. That's www.edapt.education. Let's go. Bill, it is so wonderful to be with you again on this episode of Game Changers for Series 7. Phil, how is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you today? I've been cancelled, Adriano. <laughs> is that right? Did you yeah. did you not pay your quinoa subscription? Look, I looked at a piece of silken tofu the wrong way, mm. and then and the, the kale quinoa, got upset. Yeah, the kale, the quinoa, they they they've all ganged up on me. So I'm sitting inside my house. It's good that we've been in lockdown because you know I've been able to do my penance, and hopefully now I'll be able to come out and congregate now that lockdown is over. Well, you know what? I think we've got to stop this nonsense and get to our guest today. Uh, My understanding, of course, Phil, because I know you have FOMO, young Hamish is also a fellow space cadet. You're going to have to eventually get get, get an invite to to this gig, mate, to become part of one of Australia's, you know, more ambitious individuals. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm more branded on being an outsider, a prophet crying in the wilderness, mate. That's, okay. that's me. Okay. Well, you keep doing you and, and, and people will love you for that. Hamish, <laughs> thank you very much for being on our uh, Game Changers series. I have a, the very first question I'm going to um, launch your way is one that we ask all our guests. And that is, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today? Oh, thank you very much, gentlemen. It looks an absolute uh, pleasure to to join you both today, and and it's very humbling. I, I find um, certainly some of your comments feel like it's. Uh, I, I don't ever see sort of the, the work I've done as an educator as being exceptional, and some of the things I would say that sum up how I've led my career are through becoming wiser about knowing my limits, and also about the opportunities of serendipity. And I would say that then, with regards to to those two things. Um, you know, my, my career as an educator began actually in uh, the pretty tough suburbs of South London during the 90s. And so for those that remember Brixton back in those days, it was a pretty tough uh, neighbourhood. And that's where I had my first teaching experiences. It was incredibly confronting as an Australian who, you know, you graduate from uni, you go, I'm going to change the world. 
And then you come face to face with that world and the reality is starkly different. Mm. Uh, and particularly there, you know, everything from um, oppression to racism to um, sort of culture wars uh, and, and let alone even just trying to learn something became a real challenge in many of the schools that I worked at. And I guess I, I learned very quickly of how to and when to throw out the rule book. And I found that that sometimes really helped me to deal with challenges, sometimes being able to say, then we have to come at it another way. And I guess my own persistence and commitment in wanting to do things differently always led me to saying there's got to be a better way. I, I then spent a number of years in Japan uh, uh, teaching English, as, again, many Australians started to do, you know, uh, back then and still do. And I went to the other end of the spectrum. So in, in the UK, I couldn't get kids to shut up. And in Japan, I couldn't get the kids to speak up. So I very, when I came back to Australia, I, I felt like I had pretty much the two ends covered around how do you navigate learning and some of these challenging spaces. And I picked up a job at Eltham College at a time when they were growing their city campus program. Um, and I found myself uh, in there and, and then very quickly found myself in a, in a leadership role there. And I would say that sort of seven years was pivotal to validating everything I thought I believed about education, how it could work, how you empower particularly um, young people at a crucial part of their lives at that sort of 14 to 16 age uh, and working out, again, when do you throw out the rule book? How do you actually build trust and relationships with young people? And I guess the thing that often becomes the hardest element is that when you do develop trust and relationships with young people, you have to expect you're going to get everything. They're going to tell you all the dark secrets they maybe not even tell their parents or about their friendships or the fact they just don't know where they belong. And that's a hard, sometimes hard baggage to carry. And I can only empathise with how so many educators wrestle with these things all the time. And at the same time, I'm still going, okay, but I still have to teach you the curriculum. I then ended up somewhat, I wouldn't say, bailing's not the right word, but I, I found myself quite burnt out. Um, by probably the, the full-time leadership and the teaching at the same time and ended up at the State Library of Victoria. And again, quickly found myself in a, in a leadership role there as the education manager. And as a history teacher, uh, once upon a time, and an English teacher, it felt like I'd found a completely new environment in which to thrive where I was looking now at learning right across the spectrum. So I was, I was not just doing professional learning and student programs, but I was also doing a whole range of public programs, which were a space I was deeply interested in, in um, particularly adult learning. How do we start to get learning and education part of a wider narrative? And that's where I very quickly just started to network with as many people as I could, I could get a handle on. Joining back in those days, you know, meetups and, and Hub Melbourne was just starting up. Um, TEDx Melbourne had just started up. So I went after those guys and we ran some TEDx's at at the State Library, which I think was um, back in those days, we actually streamed it online around the world. Oh. Um, and um, we had like 600, I think, viewers joining from around the world and about 250 inside the library. And it was like, at that stage, we were just blown away by this idea of this globalized world that people in Mexico would wanna watch what was happening in, in, in Melbourne. And again, after sort of nearly seven years with the library, it was like, oh, I think I'm, again, that sort of, wisdom of knowing I think I need to move on and I, again I, I think that's what I found in my own career is that just that knowing when is the right time um, you know when do I think I've achieved what I wanted to achieve and, and just being con 
and having that conviction. Fortunately, I, I came at a time when I, I was uh, then snapped up by Notosh, which I know actually you've spoken to you and Macintosh previously yeah. on, on the show. And again, you can imagine working with someone like Ewan for years. Um, he's, he's a human dynamo, um, never short of an idea and a provocation. And I found that a massively um, satisfying experience, particularly the design thinking space and going as an educator, I believe I understood it. I just didn't know how to execute or structure or scaffold it. And the experience of traveling out of a suitcase for four years, um, while tiring, it fed, I suppose, my sense of adventure and I all over Australia and to parts of Asia and Europe and, and also got to go to an amazing experience in Egypt. Um, and those things just again validated what I'd been hearing from educators across so many systems, as well as how the tension in education is we want consistency, but when it gets down to it, the autonomy that educators need to make their own choices because of their own contexts is deeply important. I think that's why, um, you know, we often hear these challenges in, in trying to systematize education. And then finally, you know, as a sort of a round out to that, to that chronology, I then found myself with an offer to come and join the AF uh, three years, just over three years ago. And again, it's been another, I feel like another evolution of my own learning as well as how do we start to scale the intercultural context of learning nationally and internationally. Uh, and it's only continued to both challenge and inspire, I think, some of the ideas and things I would still love to achieve. Amish, thank you very much for, for giving us this really rich uh, insight into your personal and professional lived experiences today. Uh, you know, the word explorer keeps coming to mind as I was listening to you, uh, a, a person who is a great example of one of our graduate outcomes, and that outcome is continuous learner and unlearner, and this, this deep quest to continue to want to evolve and grow. I mean, that's our aspiration for every young person in our school system, right? I also love that fact that you've shared with us a deep wrestling, you know, a, a, a wrestling with the challenge of all these circumstances have brought you uh, around, are they still serving you well, but are they serving the people that you're serving well, you know? Uh, and, and then you've littered that really beautiful introduction there with a little bit of a that self-determination piece that we often talk about. But beautifully, you've also spoken about wonder and awe. You know, having those encounters with people and place that shift us, that really have an impact on, 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 our, on our hearts. And I suppose that's really perfect for our conversation with you today, where we are going to explore this notion of in-country immersion. And because that you've really explained to us, you've been living immersion most of your career. Uh, one other little side note is that I actually also taught English communication in Nagoya, Japan. And I remember on my very first day, Hamish, they presented me with a pair of blue slippers. You know, all the students wear the slippers and I had to wear these slippers, but I've got a size 11 foot and they gave me a slipper that was maybe an eight and a half at best. Anyway, every day I had to turn up in my suit wearing these blue slippers with, you know, half the size of my foot. And it was on my last day there, they presented me with a size 11 shoe as a thank you gift. 
<laughs> bizarre, bizarre with the rituals that we have there. Yeah. Can, you, can you share really briefly, because uh, I've got two questions for you. One that's about deep learning. and and But the first is just maybe give our listeners a bit of an insight. This is an opportunity to do a bit of promotion, of course, a bit of an insight into the Asian Education Foundation at Asian Link University, at University of Melbourne. Just give them a, a bit of a snapshot of what that actually looks like and how that supports schools and countries in terms of bridging. Yeah, thanks very much, Adriano. It's a really impressive space to be in because uh, there's a huge, huge legacy in terms of the work that the AF has been part of. And and the AF began back in 1992. uh, And it was an initiative of the Australian government, the the Maya um, Family Foundation, in collaboration with the University of Melbourne. And at that time, the Curriculum Corporation, which is now Education Services Australia. And it was there at a time when Australia was wrestling with how to better engage um, with Asia. And of course, that uh, spawned a whole range of opportunities for uh, Australian educators to go and have uh, in-country immersions. Um, And and there are still, what I found remarkable is when I meet people who I've never met before and they go, I went on on an immersion to India back in 1997. Um, and, and, and AF was the leader, and I've never forgotten that. And I've, that sort of connection has always really impressed me that people have those deep elements of things that affected them. Uh, and when it comes to deep learning, that's actually, I think, um, what it takes. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll speak about more of that in a moment. But the AF, its mission has always been about how to deeply embed and equip educators and students with intercultural learning uh, and the kind of perspectives across the Asia-Pacific that help Australia understand its place in in the world and our neighbours. Every country in the world absorbs and and acknowledges the environment in which it it thrives. Uh, And so um, sometimes there's this tension of, well, you know, what about the rest of the world? Well, Australia isn't in the rest of the world. We're in the Asia-Pacific. So so these are our neighbours. Our closest neighbour to Australia is Papua New Guinea. Um, you know, it, you can almost, you can, well, not you could almost, well, maybe some could swim there, but it's extraordinary when you think about the historical and cultural ties um, between um, Papua New Guinea and, and Australia. And so many people have developed experiences um, uh, that have that have deeply, again, deeply affected them. They are cultural, they're not necessary transformations, they are, they are kind of powerful reminders in what we say and what we do, where we have to be careful that we're not stereotyping or putting other people down. And I guess that's um, led a lot of the work where uh, AF was key to the 2008 Melbourne Declaration, mm-hmm. where um, Asia and engagement with Asia and Asia literacy were a big part of that narrative, which spawned uh, new elements of the curriculum through uh, Asia and Australia's engagement with Asia and the intercultural understanding, of course. And that work meant that AF has been empowered and was empowered at the time to not only support Australian school leaders with a national program, I think AF reached about 3,500 schools around the country instructing school executives on how to actually understand and, and engage with Asia from both a, um, a knowledge um, and, and skills piece, but also in, in the attitudes piece, which is often how the OECD frames um, global competence, the knowledge, skills and attitudes. They add, they add values in there as well. I would have a little bit of, of an argument there about the degree to which you can actually teach values, but it reminds us in our work that the professional learning we do needs to also be offset by working with young people directly. And while that has never been a huge part of AF's work, We've continued to do a whole lot of both uh, youth forums, 
Uh, we do a lot of consultation with young people when we're looking to create new initiatives um, so that we're trying to develop a, an element of co-design in understanding are we, are we reaching the right point. But likewise too, AF has often had a great uh, record in research. A lot of the, the languages work that we've done uh, has often led to key policy changes when we looked at the impact of China, in, um, Indonesian, uh, Japanese, Korean, uh, and, and understanding how Australia elevates and offers greater choice in languages that reflect again, as I put <laughs> before, our neighbourhood. Yeah. Uh, so those things have been uh, mainstays of AF. But in the last three years since, since I started, I sort of came in with that huge legacy and, and of course, can't go a moment without acknowledging actually Kathy Kirby, who was the executive director for AF for, for that entire time and, and someone who I consider um, my wisest, most dearest mentor in this space. Um, she is the walking Rolodex of, you know, if you want to find someone who knows someone about something, you go to Kathy. But trying to work out where should AF go next? And, and I would say two of the things that we're really trying to um, shift um, is how to reconceive intercultural learning. And I can talk more about um, what we're doing there, but also how we're trying to change the way in which educators in Australia collaborate with peers across Asia Pacific. So, and this maybe comes to your point about in-country immersions, less of, I wanna go there and help, and more of, I wanna go there and actually deeply learn. And I want to uh, see if we can produce something together. Um, that is going to benefit education. And those things are, are, are sometimes subtle things to do because you're getting people to shift a bit of a mindset. But I do think beyond just the assumption that the only reason we would connect with China is because of Mandarin, it's a huge missed opportunity. There are so many other things we could be doing to work with education in countries like China or Indonesia or Singapore, Malaysia, Japan, than just assuming it's purely for language exchange and, and that's what we're hoping to shift thank you hamish my, my question uh, my, my last question at this point before i know i know phil's uh, itching to get in here is one around the learning piece you know learning learning is often the focus of the work that we do in schools and and in australia but particularly in victoria you know the state government has actually really invested heavily in subsidizing these this notion of six-week immersion uh cultural and linguistic uh uh, immersions to China, to Indonesia, and more recently, uh, India, particularly with, with the rise of STEM and trying to build uh, a real a relationship there. My own personal experience with that is that the school that I was fortunate enough to lead uh, previously was one of the very fir first uptakers of the, the China immersion experience. And, and if you want to talk about success of a program, uh, Hamish, young men that participated in that immersion in year nine when they got to year 12, they had two choices. Do I book schoolies or do I book another eight-week opportunity in China? And can I tell you, the volume of young men that opted for that second piece was phenomenal. And for me, that speaks to the strength of that program, not just from the growth in their linguistic capacity, but their, what we noticed profoundly was a growth in their empathy, in their intercultural and cultural understandings, uh, their regard for the other period, it didn't matter if it was Chinese or anyone, they started to broaden their perspectives in a way that they thought they had broadened broad perspectives. But of course, 
They lived in a very kind of sheltered existence and a very privileged one that was very foreign to that. They really developed a, a, a deep love of, of exploring as well. But that's a really beautiful kind of um, example of, of the success of a program because because it's, it's like a customer, right? When you can get the customer the first time, but when they return, that's when you've got success. Uh, and, and that's what we have in this regard. So my question to you is this, having started your career as a classroom teacher working in the UK, in Japan, and leading a year nine city campus program in Melbourne that you touched upon earlier, what do you believe are the conditions that lead to deep and effective language education in schools? So I probably have to acknowledge I'm, I'm, I'm not a languages teacher. In the same way that I used to say when I was at the State Library and I got invited to lots of library conferences, I always say I'm not a librarian. So my own expertise in this space is, is only through my own um, reading experience and, and what I've seen. Um, and it does, it comes back to a point I was, I was going to make um, earlier. And, and this was some things when we were at the State Library and we were trying to wrestle with, uh, and of course these days it might be called cognitive uh, load uh, or information overload and the idea of how much how much history do kids need to hear about the state library in order to really appreciate it of course if you have a lot of knowledge all we want to do is pass that on but you you, you sacrifice the ability to um, deeply embed that because there's just too much of it and so one of the, the things that really struck us was actually and the thing has stuck with me since that time is it's not about memory it's about being memorable and, and that as a simple element of design um, sticks with me. And I, and I feel like that is a lovely place to start when it comes to deep learning. So deep learning is not about how much can you remember and shove in your memory. And, and of course, that's the nature sometimes of, of how exams work. What is it about the experience that will be truly memorable, that will create, and again, for it to be memorable, it needs to be uh, not only a combination of knowledge, which also sometimes is, is usually best served by a narrative, and so when it comes to, to learning another language, it's not always about just memorize these colors and numbers and greetings and you'll be fine. Is, is there a narrative that that can be part of for you? Secondly, is, is the ability to, to develop something emotional. Um, and while empathy is one part of that, and, and I would argue empathy is somewhat trying to not let the emotions get the better of you. But again, the experience you talked about of, of your students that they have a deep emotional experience that suddenly goes, I, there's like, it changed the way I see the world. It changed the way I feel about people. Mm -hmm. So, so doing that is, is, is important. So that's where those in-country immersions can be incredibly pivotal. There's so many professional adults I speak to who said it was the year eight, year nine or year 10 experience I went through that made me the person I am today. I think the other part to, to, to deep learning is the ability then to um, uh, develop than relationships. So relationships, not only with those in, in, your, in your immediate peer group, and you start to see each other a little differently, but you actually start to develop a wider network. And, and so again, one of my, one of my call signs or, or phrases I, I started saying while I was with Notosh was, um, instead of just talking about a world of work, perhaps we should be talking about a world of networks. Uh, and, and, and again, that idea that if I look to my younger self, if I had the kind of access to networks I have now when I was 16, I can only imagine actually how it would have shaped my career. Um, and I think the opportunity, for example, to through, could be through, uh, you know, we're talking about portfolios and, and how do we capture deep learning and measure it? Well, you know, as I did with one school, um, 
a while ago was getting the senior school teachers to design LinkedIn profiles with their VCE kids. And it actually highlighted, you know, by not naming names, of course, actually how little they knew about their kids. Who do you want to know? Who do you want to be? Like, what do you want to do? Like, um, it actually started a conversation they'd not really touched on by actually saying, how do we answer this criteria here for you? So when it comes to learning another language, there are so many constraints that make it hard to learn a second language in often the many confines and resources of, of schools in Australia. But without an opportunity to suspend some of the drill and skill and get into something that's um, memorable and something that creates relationships, then I, I don't think you're ever going to get the long-term commitment that we want to see out of second language learning. Really, really interesting things that you're talking about there, Hamish, in terms of setting up the preconditions for success. I want to take you a little bit further with emotion and then I want to go to values. And I want to, I want to talk about the shaping of those if I can. And it might get a little esoteric here, but, but I think there's some value in it. Um, I've been talking this week to Saxon Phipps and Will Stubbley from Year 13, an extraordinary young guys doing an, an amazing thing. One of the things as guys just in their 30s that they do is that they confront emotion. They don't push it to one side. I, I, I think I said to them, I'm, I'm, I'm of the generation who was taught to disregard emotion, that emotion was unnecessary. And, you know, as a young teacher, when we were presented with curriculum in, in the great state of New South Wales, as it was then, the curriculum had that, well, still a great state now, but curriculum then was about knowledge, skills and values and attitudes. And we knew what to do with knowledge because we did that on Monday to, Monday to Wednesday and we just drilled kids on that. And then Thursday, we gave them a template for skills and then we tested them on Friday and we didn't do values and attitudes because we really didn't know what to do about that. We have an understanding now about the deep relationship of emotion to learning. We have, an, a, a, you know, in, in, in many ways, that process of immersing people um, in somewhere strange, which is an act which is disruptive of itself, automatically prompts an emotional response. How can we help teachers to use that emotion and to construct a pedagogy which will which will bridge that wrestling between the journey into the self and the journey into the world that immersive learning does? Wow, that's a really good, challenging uh, context there, Phil. I, for any for any teachers. That are, that are listening, you know when you've achieved an emotional connection with your learners. As a teacher in that room, uh, when you've got learners and you can see it's having an emotional impact on them through the experience that you're, you're, you've set up for them, those are the things then that sometimes you have to accept that I will never be able to replicate that again because of the, the unique context that was presented to me. Um, likewise, what was it about that? that what was the, some of the ingredients that I put in there that I could potentially replicate? It's often about the perspective of other and it's the it's exposure, I think is, is probably hopefully not a too simplistic way of putting it. So when we talk about exposure, it's, it's exposure to worlds that are, that are perhaps somewhat foreign or unknown to us. And I think it's important to reiterate, and, and we find ourselves saying this, that engaging with Asia is not out there somewhere. It's not over the borders and this is often you can hear it in lots of language and lots of uh, lots of different documents that what they're actually talking about is Asia over there rather than actually the connection with culture and, and people of very different backgrounds here and you only have to go outside the school gates to sometimes achieve that so we've often found when when trying to work with educators and teachers let's say on the space of global citizenship and we actually had this last year we ran a course in Victoria for Victorian school leaders 
And again, complete lockdown, everything was online. And at the end of it, a number of the school leaders actually remarked, and it was satisfying here, that I didn't realise I could learn about global citizenship without ever getting on a plane or ever going to another country or ever actually understanding that global citizenship was already in our community. We just hadn't seen it. So there's that, there's that thing of the peripheral vision being widened. And sometimes it's about reading your learners. What are the stories that maybe they need to hear um, that might challenge them? How do I present that story? Can I bring the person? Can I can we watch it? Can we listen to it? You know, there's, there's so many ways you can, you, you can, you could then curate that. And then being able to provide the one thing, <laughs> the one thing that I think most in education admit we never have time to do, and that's reflection. You know, my, my colleague, Satoshi Sonata would say, um, you know, he, he's been teaching me about all the academic ways of talking about these things, which is called reflexivity, which is very much like reflection but it's when you sit down and, and reevaluate how your how your own values or judgment or perceptions have changed. Reflection is just writing about it and saying, "Oh yeah, you know, this is what I thought, this is what I experienced." Reflexivity is about actually assessing how how I may have changed. I think reflection is still we can still catch that with reflection without introducing too many complex terminologies. But you've got to make time for reflection, and and that's often the the, the speed of education doesn't allow enough time to internalize how it's affected me and how I might have changed. And, and that's, that's probably the, the other element of this, I think, that, um, that needs to be factored in. It's a lovely answer with um, many little strands. And I, I kind of want to pick up where you left off there in terms of reflection and just the, the observation, the speed of education. Teachers who are caught in the old paradigm of transmitting knowledge from an expertise on high um, feel as though they're rushed because they have to com cover content all the time. Teachers who embrace the understanding that it's about the learning, not the coverage of content, realise that if you reallocate time towards the stuff that's really, really important, then you're more likely to get deep learning. And, and, and if we're not allowing ourselves time to reflect, um, then our kids won't reflect. I want to tie this in, and, the, and you alluded to it in your last answer too, I want to tie it into the notion of values. I think one of the challenges that we have with intercultural education is trying to work out the bits which are the same and the bits which are different between us and them, between the, the in-group and the other. Um, uh, you know, and the, the, the challenge of humanity has always been about building a sense of belonging within our own culture and then working out what we do with other people who want to enter into our culture. You know, there's, in, in my mind, the great gaping wound of, of Australian history is, of course, our chronic dispossession of our Indigenous folk. Um, and yet, you know, recently, if we look at the way in which we've treated refugees and asylum seekers in this country, regardless of the circumstances, how they've come, you know, how dare we as a nation, we've just created concentration camps and put people in them, you know, and, and we can call it what we like, but that's, that's, that's where it is. Um, at some point, we need to work out what we share in common in our values and what is different in our values. And I, I, I don't know necessarily that you can teach a value, but you can claim a value as your own. And in supporting students, we can model them. 
we can coach them and we can scaffold them, but it, they have to claim them. It's like a purpose. You can suggest a purpose, but at the end of the day, your purpose is your own, your agency is your own. And that's what our, our research on character education has taught us with the agency of, of moral character, which is you know, the quest to do good and right in the world. Only you can determine whether you're doing the right or the wrong thing. It's damn cheeky of anybody else to do that. So how can we use this type of immersive experience, which prompts in us emotional responses, which disrupts our normal experience of reality and which gives us a chance to reframe through reflection where we stand. How can we help negotiate that space between what we share in common in our values and what is different? Oh, gee, you've got all the good ones today, Phil. Uh, you bring it out of me, Hamish. You bring yeah, all these questions out of me. No, no, look, I, and I guess the, the, the tension here is um, understanding how education works as a, as a, as a key cog in society. Um, so I think one thing is, is being able to distinguish between a response that's about society in general versus the role of, the role of education. Now, all, all schools generally have in their own um, mission and vision certain values that they prioritise and they, and they want to engender in their school community. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, I mean, in fact, you know, things like um, empathy, um, uh, fairness, um, equality, um, you know, respecting diversity, they, these things actually appear in, in lots of um, school mission and vision statements. And we actually uh, did a little bit of work trying to learn more about this uh, about a year or so ago, I think one of my team started this question. They started just to look at where do these certain keywords appear in school values? And they just started to look at as many as they could find uh, and found actually there was quite a high correlation between words like empathy um, and equality being used by, by schools as key values. So, of course, those talking about values is one thing. And that's why I think this is where it, it gets tricky because we can talk about values, actually what they look like and what they feel like sometimes to each of us can be very different. It really depends on what our actual lived experience is. So if we're talking about fairness and equality and in a school community, we feel somehow disadvantaged either through, um, you know, it could be race, gender, ability, whatever it might be, that, that value no longer feels like it's been very much lived like because we've been, we've received the opposite of that value. And so that creates that attention there that you either, you know, you either tolerate it or you persist with it. And of course, it's up to people at a higher level to actually start to keep coming back to those values and saying, so what do we mean by it? What does it look like in our school community? Um, and I guess the, the, the element there is, um, you know, no one can take values for granted. Um, but likewise too, values in Australia, and, and again, it's, these are elements that are in, 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 if you like, somewhat enshrined in, in curriculum about democracy um, and, and elements of, of, of citizenship that come with Australia's democracy. If you're going to then have an in-country experience in a country like China, where those values don't operate like that, you have to at some point accept that you have to accept it and you have to try to understand it there's no way of trying to simply just impose your values on it on another on another nation and, and again look there's a long history lesson around how the world has somewhat failed at that um, in being able to engender different values upon different um, communities and, and societies and that then comes back to 
part of education. How do we how do we get a lived experience of what that means? And, I, and without the, co the confrontation is not the right word, but without the opportunity to have your own values challenged, and that's probably the point I'm trying to make here. If your own values aren't challenged, you actually can't validate or articulate what they actually mean to you. Otherwise, they're just hidden from view. They're just things you just accept should be the way things are, um, when actually that's not the case. Um, so, you know, everything should just be fair and equal. Well, if you're an Indigenous Australian, that's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. um, so there's lots of tensions here that I think create a rich discussion. And perhaps it's the, again, coming back to the, the role of education, how does education make time for these? And, and again, it's it's a, a reminder of um, there's an element of philosophy in here somewhat. Uh, and I know there's a, a I can't remember the name of it. There's a French documentary done years ago about how they taught philosophy to like preps and 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 like kids in kindergarten and had the most astounding results um, about how they view and understand the world and about what society means to them and, and why things are the way they are. And, and maybe that's an element here. And I know some schools actually do do this in bringing back some of those deeper discussions about society and philosophy that are not necessarily the realm of, oh, well, I'm sure the history teacher will cover that. I think that's the assumption we often make in curriculum. It's, oh yeah, there's, there's that natural home for that. And I'm sure they'll cover that. Yeah, I think one of the I think one of the problems with this sort of stuff is that it's hard to do, and it's personally confronting and challenging. It's much easier, really, isn't it? Just having an education system which is all about meaningless, decontextualised examinations, shoving content down people's throats, and then assuming <laughs> somebody else will do it. And then by the time they're fifteen, we've just created learned dependency. I'm blaming um, you, Hamish, for him getting on the soapbox. And, no, and, no, and, and there's no self determination in there. No, no, you're absolutely right. It's it's about prompting responsibility, and it's prompting our own civic responsibility. And it's, it's, it, it calls on us to contemplate what we value and to put that into action as educators. I'm standing back from the microphone okay. now, Adriano. So, so I, I, I want to just jump in here because this, this, this conversation that we've just had now for the last 10 or so minutes is really important. We're identifying some of the inherent challenges and opportunities in this conversation. So I, I'm, I'm going to ask you a practical question now uh, that, that we can take this conversation and, and then bring it back into our classrooms in a really meaningful way. The intercultural understanding capability of the Australian curriculum encourages students to make connections between our world and the worlds of others. This is what we're fundamentally talking about here. So how can we better develop intercultural understanding programs and curricula in our schools for today and for tomorrow? Great question. Look, there's, there's lots of ways to, to make it. Practical, and, and, I, and I think we, we've covered a couple of them. Obviously, the importance of um, making it real, as real as as real as possible. And sometimes, I, and I think in my own experience in my work, in working with lots of teachers and schools, it's the the real the way of making it real was just outside their reach. They just hadn't quite realised they could just take that one more step. And oh, I didn't know I could actually contact the local council or 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 get that community group or that that person to connect with us. So um, it's taking that one extra step. How do I actually make it real? The other one I think is some of the practical elements. And, and these, these are some questions that actually we were provoked by when we looked at the, the, the previous report on the PISA results on global competence um, from the OECD, which is also the idea of just global news. 
you know, and so I think it was um, a oh, long time ago now. It's still running. It's one of the few Google tools they haven't killed called the called newspaper map. Yeah. And so go and have a look at newspaper map. And so if you're a data visual visualization data nerd like me, um, things like that are just, it creates a couple of things, curiosity, exploration, coming to a theme we've talked about, and a chance to actually start to see that not everyone sees the world the same way. Um, so in newspaper map, you can, you can drill in and click on news from all over the world, right down to sometimes um, uh, prefectural news. And then Google Translate can step in and translate some of it if you like. Um, there's other things um, like that that kind of visualise the world in a different way. So um, if you want to get into some super data nerdy stuff, um, the Harvard Globe of Economic Complexity is a pretty mind-bending um, visualisation tool. They've also now created an atlas of economic complexity. So it's a way of showing how the world is connected, particularly through trade, but it does actually, it starts to show you patterns that of big data that you actually couldn't get a grapple on before. And I would argue that sometimes, uh, not to say that this is always simple, but particularly in high school, where these things tend to um, uh, somewhat dissipate into very um, siloed or, or, or coming back to Phil's point, very content-driven concepts, is instead of saying, right, put up the Harvard Globe of Economic Complexity without saying anything, and see how students start to, what are the questions they ask? How do we unravel what this is? What is it telling us? What, what is it saying about Australia? So less, and, and I was saying this to my team the other day that, and we know this is one of the, one of the brilliant ways that as a teacher, you know you're doing something right, is then when the kids ask more questions than the teacher does, you know you're triggering curiosity, an opportunity to, to decode the world around us questions that the teacher says, actually, I don't know, but there may be a way I can help you find out or we can find out. I mean, that's the, that's the nature of inquiry. Right? That's how you know there's yeah. good inquiry. Not I'm serving up an inquiry to the class and it's already decided, but actually stimulated from genuine curiosity where we have time to question the world around us. If, and I guess there's a whole lot of other examples I could put in, Phil, but that, that's hopefully that's a little bit of a start. Sure. So we've been. This conversation has been really exciting because we've been exploring the purpose of why building awareness from global perspectives is is important. Why why building a deeper understanding of sustainability and an active citizenship. Why that's important. What what the purpose of that is that leads to kind of the full flourishing of the individual uh, in their in their context in the local context the regional and the community context. We've been exploring the purpose of values within and 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 outside of ourselves. We've been exploring the purpose of having a deep emotional connection to the encounters of learning, whether it's in country, whether it's online, whether it's in person, you know, whether it's in context. We've also had an opportunity to, to, for you to share with us the purpose of Australia tuning in to Asian perspectives and the value that it will continue to bring to us in this region as global citizens and, and to help us understand uh, context so much better and, and, and build bridges because that's so much of what you know, the Asian Foundation does so successfully is build bridges. I love that it's not a wall. So we've spoken a lot about purpose in relation to learning and in relation to, to the topic that we've covered here today, 
What I'm interested in, and this is my final question to you, is this. I want to know what Hamish's life of purpose is. Yeah, gosh. Um, so, so I'm going to go back to um, one of my favourite words, which some, some may know I, I've used incessantly. So my favourite word is sagacity. And um, Professor Brian Caldwell, in his book on reimagining educational leadership, his definition of sagacity was the intelligent application of knowledge acquired from years of learning and experience. And so sagacity to me is like applied wisdom. So it's the ability to look at something with a level of intelligence and apply it in a new way. So, so again, it's not do what we've done, but because I've had this exposure to a range of different experiences and learning contexts, I know that things can be, there are other ways here. There are other solutions. There are other pathways. There's another tangent. We're just a one step away from exploring. So for me, um, sagacity and, and that whole notion of transition, um, which has become both, um, you know, driver of my own blog, which I constantly ignore, uh, and also my gamer tag, um, transition is, is, uh, is, a big part, I think, of, of how we need to be viewing ourselves and the world around us. It is constantly changing, constantly. Anyone who says that education hasn't changed or is still an industrial model actually doesn't understand education. It, it, education has constantly changed and adapted. Um, it has, but the problem is it's incredibly resilient to structural and fundamental change. Um, and we're still beginning to understand how we might change that but it's going to require a huge level of social trust and value to be able to achieve that kind of change um, and and that's what gets me excited about the work that I do um, I get to constantly play with opportunities to either you know in inception <laughs> making people think it was their idea all along or at least suggesting there are other pathways that we may not have explored yet Hamish, that sort of inception thing and that suggesting to people that it was their idea, they're two very, very um, canny tools of the sort of leadership of the high-performance learning culture for staff and students within the contemporary inquiry of, um, uh, a community of inquiry and practice that, that a school is. Can you give us just two more, two more tips for how to promote the type of learning that is going to enable our young people to move from surviving to thriving in this new world environment? Perhaps, perhaps to sort of somewhat cheat on this one, um, you know, the goals of, of the AEF are to encourage and foster two-way engagement between Australia and, and Asia-Pacific. So, again, coming back to how do we see it as reciprocal, not, not one way or not, again, my point earlier about I'm just there to help you. So genuine two-way engagement between, uh, between young people between educators. And the second is to actually increase the education outcomes we get through it through intercultural learning. So not necessarily saying that intercultural learning is only going to ever give us intercultural understanding and maybe, you know, a cross-curricular priority. That in fact, intercultural learning can be about some of the things I've highlighted, about critical thinking, creative thinking, ethical understanding, personal and social capability the opportunity to see subject areas in completely new lights or actually start to realise that language is incredibly playful and malleable. It's not just what the textbook um, dictates to me. So the opportunity to, to see those two things, two-way engagement and really seeing intercultural learning as quite a rich spectrum of, of exposure and experience and greater empathy, then I think 
all those in education, whether they be educators or students, are going to find some, some new insights and perspectives on themselves and on how they interact with the world. Hamish, so it's reciprocity and increasing the points of engagement, two great ways for us to, um, to, to and very practical ways um, for us to finish this conversation today. Thank you so much for the opportunity of, uh, of wrestling um, with, with, with such important concepts and, and thank you for the work that you and have been doing and are doing and that the AEF has been doing for years. I was one of those school leaders who was profoundly influenced by the work of the AEF many years ago. And I think one of the textbooks I wrote on, uh, on Japan was probably, uh, if not partially funded by, by a grant in that respect, it was certainly um, prompted by some tremendous thinking from a professional learning opportunity that's stuck with me over many, many years. So thank you, Hamish. And um, thank you for being on Game Changers today. Pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you both so much. It's been great chatting with you. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by our School for Tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.